Welcome. I'm Knox County District Attorney General Sharm Allen. Thank you for joining us on Generally Speaking, where I will discuss important issues impacting public safety with expert frontline prosecutors who are seeking justice each and every day. The District Attorney General's office can sometimes seem shrouded in secrecy. This is most often due to ethical rules that prohibit us from discussing pending cases. Our goal is to pull back that perceived curtain and tell you exactly who we are and what we do in the pursuit of justice, both in the courtroom and the community. Generally speaking, of course. Thank you for joining us on Generally Speaking. On today's episode, we're going to examine what my office is doing at the cross-section of mental health and public safety. We thought this would be a very exciting episode based upon the large numbers of individuals that we now come into contact with in the criminal justice system who are unfortunately struggling with mental health issues. The experts that we have brought in for today's podcast are Sam Lee, who is the Chief Deputy at the District Attorney General's office. He oversees the daily operations of the office, and he's my second in command. He helps develop and sustain strategic initiatives and builds partnerships with our community partners. He has prosecuted crimes in both Knox and Anderson counties, and he's represented clients both civilly and in criminal matters throughout the entire state. He received his Bachelor of Arts from the University of Tennessee in 1989, his Doctor of Jurisprudence degree from Nova Southeastern University College of Law in 1994, and his Master of Laws from George Washington University in 1996. We also have Justin Pruitt, who is an assistant district attorney in our office. He joined the office in March of 2016. He holds a master's degree in school psychology. He was the director of the University of Tennessee College of Law's pro bono projects during his third year of law school, and he was also awarded the William M. Leach Jr. Public Service Prize and Student Clinic Attorney Award, making him a perfect fit for public service. He has served in the juvenile unit in our office, focusing on rehabilitative efforts for our community's youth, and he currently serves as a special prosecutor for cases involving individuals experiencing serious mental illness. Welcome, both of you. Thank you for having us, General. Thank you. Okay, let's begin our direct examination. Guys, you're both here today because you bring a unique perspective to the, really, the issues that we deal with in the criminal justice system in relation to those with mental illnesses. And Sam, you see a much broader picture. And Justin, you see a more day-to-day boots on the ground kind of perspective. So could you each kind of explain to our listeners your interaction with the mental health issues that we deal with? Well, mental health courts have been something that are on the forefront of what people are doing in this cross-section, as you described, with mental health and public safety. Started around 1990, and I think there's about 370 mental health courts around the country. But the interesting thing is, is that there's no real consistency in the format or the process because they're all unique to the geography of of the court and the defendant that they're trying to serve. So, you know, your vision has been to prevent crime. And one of the ways we prevent crime is by making sure that people don't come back into the system. So as we go through this process and we look for good examples of what's going on around the country and what's going on around the state of Tennessee, I try to bring us the options in process and policy and in format, keep us kind of informed as to what might work the best here And then I get to work with Justin as far as trying things out in the courtroom and on paper, just trying to make a a better process. 
each time we go through it. And like I said, I'm the special prosecutor, the mental health prosecutor in the office. So, you know, what does that mean? I wear several hats for our office. For one, I'm the office's liaison and team member for the Knox County Recovery Court and the Veterans Recovery Court. Those are our specialized problem-solving courts that work with individuals, either their pre-adjudication or post-adjudication, and they require more frequent collaborations and support their sober living and overlaps immensely with mental health issues. We see a lot of mental health issues there and not just substance abuse issues. We don't have yet, like we said, a formalized specialty court with mental health, but I work through a similar kind of problem-solving process with several cases here in all of our courts where we have serious mental illness issues, first and kind of foremost. Occasionally, we have from time to time where our office is involved with civil hearings for involuntary hospitalization. So I do a little bit of cross-section of all those. And Justin, it's worth mentioning that I first appointed you as our uh, mental health prosecutor just as COVID was setting in. We started that appointment in early, same year that we got COVID. And so you have had an uphill battle dealing with that issue because we totally revamped our courts the way we did things. And so you have done a fantastic job dealing with the mental health issues, which spiked during COVID. So you really started when we really needed to have a mental health prosecutor in place. So like the criminal justice system, our community's mental health care system is complex and layered. How and why do the two systems currently overlap? Part of the reason is, is we've seen a, a decrease in basically services that are available, specifically in our area. You know, we lost Lakeshore. The Lakeshore was a mental institution housed here in Knox County that was state-funded, and it was basically um, a hospital for mentally ill patients, not necessarily criminal, but also just suffering typical ailments of severe mental illness. And they had a hospital, they had halfway houses, they had step-downs, they had a whole panoply on a, a pretty large campus here in Knoxville that offered a great service. I think in the streamlining process with, with budget concerns and whatnot, that hospital closed. So what we saw is we saw the lack of services leading to basically those people being pushed into the criminal justice system, i.e. the police got called to a lot more calls than they used to get called to. It was a lot of families that did their best to manage those mental health scenarios that had nowhere else to turn to but the police officers. And then oftentimes there was drugs or violence, so they ended up in jail. And, and that's how we've seen this big increase in uh, the folks that are ending up in jail. The other part of that is, is with substance abuse, there's always some mental illness component and vice versa. So we're seeing the more of the manifestation of drugs, the lack of services, like you said, COVID, just the, a lot of the things that are going on in, in the world right now that lead people to um, end up in front of a police officer. And even in the best situations, it's kind of inherently a little bit complex because, you know, we have mental health issues that get amplified with some substance abuse. Sometimes we have self-medication going on with with some of the mental health issues. And sometimes we have some of those issues in check, but we have kind of a more drug induced symptoms involved as well. So they kind of naturally complicate each other, even in the best of situations. And because these systems do overlap and because there are sometimes places where there are gaps in the mental health system, oftentimes the family members or the victims in these cases are a little different than our typical victims too. Justin, do you want to talk for just a minute about how oftentimes they're turning to the criminal justice system for help, not necessarily for incarceration? Sure, sure. And we have a lot of you know, caretakers that are all you know, frustrated may not have their own resources to kind of seek out the help that they need to care for their loved ones. I'll talk about it later, but I come from a background of special education. So some of these families, when they have 
particularly challenging youth, and then they grow up to be adults, you know, they need to go through possibly some legal actions to help them with take care of their legal needs, take care of their medical needs. It's the same kind of lack of resources sometimes for the families without need. But then they come and, you know, we get some behavior that's criminal. And that's when we have caretakers who are our victims. They're our, they're their best advocate in the courtroom, but they're also there are victims in our cases. So we have kind of competing interests and in trying to make sure that we always want to make sure that the public is safe. We want to make sure that our victims concerns are addressed, but then also what to do with these individuals that are getting charged. Sam, can you talk about some of our partnerships or initiatives that we have with community stakeholders? So we're fortunate to have good partnerships here in Knox County with law enforcement and social services. The McNabb Center is, is probably our biggest partner as far as offering services. You have the program with the Behavioral Health Urgent Care Center that they're the biggest part of as far as diverting folks on certain crimes out of the system, meaning that they never even see the jailhouse door. And a lot of times never see the courthouse door. So that, that works very effectively. And I think the vision that you've casted for us in the future is to try to line those services up sequentially so that um, there's different services for different folks. Just like like Justin said, there's families out there that are struggling. And a lot of them are just elderly folks dealing with adult children. The disparity there just in physical strength alone is just difficult for them to overcome. So they, they'll turn to, to law enforcement just to, one, sometimes to get respite, and then two, for their safety and the safety of the other person. So law enforcement is our big partner, and, and you've done a lot of good programming as far as getting them CIT trained, getting them aware of how to identify situations where the catalyst is really a mental illness versus just criminal activity. So as we go through this process, I think that's our biggest goal right now is to figure out what are all the different other agencies out there that we can successfully partner with. I know Cherokee's out there. I know there's a lot of different services and a lot of them are offering substance abuse services right now, but they also deal with mental health. So we've got to figure out how we can access all those different services. The other partners that we now have engaged with are the clerk's office, the public defender's office, and the court system to try to get this mental health court up and running so that we have a judicially supervised problem-solving court that takes a team approach to try to deal with each individual. I think that's one of the things that makes this unique in the end is every individual is different in the way they present in the mental health perspective and how we can try to prevent them from coming back. There's not just a boxed solution for it. One of the things that you mentioned in your answer was our officers are now getting CIT training. So I just wanted to mention that CIT for our listeners is crisis intervention training. And that is a 40-hour week-long program that our local law enforcement goes through to really better understand how to address and deal with those folks that they encounter on the job that are suffering from a mental health crisis. Instead of the traditional make the arrest, bring them to jail approach, our officers are much better trained now. They have more tools in their toolbox, if you will, uh, much better ways to deal with those folks that are suffering from mental health crisis because our officers are the first ones to see them out there on the front line. So we deal with them uh, on the back end when they're brought into the system, but the officers are certainly out on the front line. I'm very appreciative of, you know, our officers having, we have the co-response units as well, the KPD put in place, the Knoxville Police Department. They filled so many calls for people who are in crisis when they go out. And same with the sheriffs. Very happy to have the Sheriff Spangler staff who work real hard with folks who are having these mental illness and substance abuse issues out at, at our detention facility and trying to work through their issues on site. Both of you have worked both in the juvenile justice system as well as the adult system. And there are differences 
in those two systems? They're, they're set up differently. The goals are different. Can we talk just a little bit about that, the differences in the two systems and how that affects the mental health issues? I was a juvenile prosecutor for our office for six years. I mean, juvenile, we have just a different default setting. It's a court of rehabilitation in juvenile court. It focuses primarily with the accused youth who are trying to see what treatment and rehabilitation needs there are as a response to the behavior that would have been a crime if they had been an adult. But since they were a juvenile, they're either a delinquent youth or an unruly youth. I mean, for myself, I wasn't coming to my new position. It wasn't that too far out of my kind of wheelhouse because down in juvenile court, we're always kind of feeling out, you know, the youth's support systems, you know, how much state involvement do we need both on, on our part, but also with the Department of Children Services, because we often would have that kind of dual tracked youth of both delinquent behavior and possibly like Department of Children Services involvement with the family situation. And, you know, ultimately what treatment do they need when they're in our state's legal custody? I think that's a, a good summary there. Juvenile court, I think, in and of itself is better suited to deal with mental illness just because it's part of the programming that the, the court offers for, for children. Because mental illness is just as prevalent, if not more so, in, in juveniles. Some of the challenges that go along with juvenile court is, is dealing with parents and guardians, dealing with the foster care system, reporting child abuse, working with schools, and recognizing developmental issues. The mental health court that, that you've set us to design is really for adults only. Um, like I said, I think the juvenile court is probably a little bit ahead of us in recognizing in the dispositional phase of a case what might be some of the developmental needs of, of children. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Great information, guys. We've talked just briefly, Justin, about how we appointed you in early 2020, just before COVID. But let's talk just for a minute about why we did appoint you. Why did we feel there was a need for a special prosecutor or a mental health unit? Let's talk about the unit. How does the unit work? Let our listeners really know what happens, the, the work in that unit. We have individuals out in the community. They're either, for my cases, they're being supervised by the courts, either before they're found guilty or after they're found guilty, whether by plea or not. Our, these individuals experience some of these serious mental health issues, but they also have that behavior that um, got us in, got them in trouble as far as having court attention and the, our attention to, to what's going on with them. Like I said, we kind of do that problem solving method with them as well. So we're looking, it's kind of case by case. We're looking for, in all the cases, they have some sort of, you know, diagnosable mental illness. It's somewhat connected to the charge of what they've been charged with and the behavior that underlined it. At the end of the day, it's always voluntary. So it's, we're never, the judge is never going to say, you know, you have no choice. You have to do this. Every case we have, it's a voluntary participation. For all those individuals, we have to make sure that they're competent to do those things, like legally competent to go forward. But once we do, sometimes an individual just needs a little bit of help in the community. Perhaps that's pointing them in the right direction towards uh, certain services that are available to them in the community. Sometimes it's trying to figure out how to best connect them to something a little more intensive. It could be like intensive case management, medication management in the community. And sometimes it, it takes getting them into some sort of inpatient care and getting that as a starting spot before they can kind of continue on. But like I said, I, I work at all the levels of the court. So whether somebody who's just first charged coming to our court for the first time or possibly somebody who is struggling on probation in our criminal courts, and they're just looking for that missing piece that's going to make them successful in our community. Yeah, I think we're really fortunate to have Justin's expertise available to us, just not only in the context of psychology, um, but also just knowing Title 33, which has to do with mental health and basically putting somebody in a hospital. Part of the reason that Justin was a good fit from the beginning is people that go to the BHUG, like I said, never see the jailhouse door and they never see the courthouse door. But a lot of people that might benefit from their services can't go because they have a prior criminal um, offense or they're currently involved with the system. So 
Justin was part of your Avenue B programming where people that come into the court system, we also wanted to get them an opportunity to get those BHUG services. So we started that pilot program here in Knox County, what, about two years ago, where we actually took a person that was in the criminal justice system, put them in front of a judge and paired them up with McNabb's FACT services, which is basically very, very intensive outpatient treatment with high touch case management. And that was kind of a voluntary program they would offer them, you know, say if you got charged with one of those misdemeanors that allowed you to go to there as a response to the moment. We just got that. We got to reconnect them with those services because they maybe missed that step. Or like Sam said, they weren't qualified for that step as well. So they're still getting those services now. But now it's a part of, you know, our, our resolution of their cases. And we've done several individuals through it. Some have been very successful with the services and kind of gotten back on track. And I think the other great thing is that for you and I that are regular prosecutors, you know, you've seen those reports and they look like Greek or Spanish or some foreign language. And Justin can read those very easily, digest them, summarize them and and help our other prosecutors understand how to really present that well to the court, which I think is a big asset for us. Both of you have talked about the BHUC and referred to the BHUC. And I think we one time quickly said it was the Behavioral Health Urgent Care Center, but I'm not sure that our listeners got all that. So just briefly, brief description of that is the BHUC or the Behavioral Health Urgent Care Center is a partnership with the McNabb Center where we in the district attorney's office have identified nine very low-level crimes. They're not crimes of violence. They're crimes like disorderly conduct, panhandling, indecent exposure, those types of things that you would usually see folks with mental health committing. And we have given our frontline officers the ability to choose to take those individuals on those nine crimes to this behavioral health urgent care center where they will receive the treatment that Sam was talking about from uh, the McNabb Center. That gives law enforcement a way to divert people really out of the criminal justice system before they bring them into the criminal justice system. And then both Sam and Justin, I think, referred to Avenue B. And what we mean by Avenue B is being able to then take them to the same center, but after they've come to court. So it's kind of a more basic description of a lot of those terms we throw around so casually because we're so used to them. Something else that Justin said in his response was he was talking about where people are or are not determined to be competent to go forward. So let's dig in on that just a second and talk about competency and insanity, those legal type terms. Explain what those are and how do they work procedurally to our listeners. Sure. And at any point in the proceedings we have here in our criminal courts and our general sessions courts, if we have a suspicion that a defendant does not have a present ability to consult with their own attorney to kind of a, we say a reasonable degree of rational understanding or they don't. And they also have to understand the proceedings that are being held against them. If they're in a state of mind where they don't understand those things or can't adequately help in their own defense, if there's a mental illness, it's that's the cause of that or a developmental disability that's the cause of that. We have to look at whether or not they, they meet that legal competency standard because that to, to go forward with the case, we're going to have to, you know, to have a jury trial to, to have any kind of findings against them. They'd have to be competent. And insanity is another thing in Tennessee. We kind of define insanity is at the time of the act, you know, if that severe mental illness or developmental disability, like a prevented you from being able to uh, appreciate the nature or the wrongfulness of what you were doing, that's a defense in our state to a crime. So we also have to check to make sure, is there any like forensics, like when the forensic evaluator talks to them and assesses them for those kind of issues, are they seeing any support for saying that, yes, they could plead insanity because of their state of mind and their illness at the time of the offense? 
easy rule of thumb is competency has to do with the time when you're actually in court and sanity has to do with the time when you committed the crime. Unique challenges. Let's talk about some unique challenges that come with doing this mental health work. The big challenge here is like there's nothing that we can just follow a recipe on. Right. So we are at the, the intersection of basically in, in our scenario, serious mental illness. Right, which is diagnosable mental behavior or emotional disorder that causes serious functional impairment and substantially interferes with or limits one or more major life activity. When a person with that diagnosis collides with the police, the jail, the courts, or because of a relationship or a substance misuse triggers some type of mental health crisis, that's what we're trying to deal with. Like Justin laid out in the earlier question, you know, we have these legal mechanisms to protect people from being subjected to the process if they don't understand it or if they can't help their lawyer. And we also have a, an affirmative defense if you couldn't appreciate the wrongfulness of your acts at the time that you did it. What we're dealing with here is something different. We're dealing with something that is the, I think the fallout of a lack of services and people ending up in jail when their behavior looks like something criminal, but really the reason they did it wasn't criminal. It was because of a mental illness or some type of triggering event that caused them to We've heard stories about people hearing things, seeing things, typically out of character. So I think the big challenge is how do we, one, create this court and successfully offer folks treatment with the limited services that we have available here in Knox County? Because we don't have a hospital anymore and we don't have a lot of services that are really focused towards serious mental illness. It's already challenging the fact that, you know, these are very case by case, even having the same diagnosis. People have like different levels of insight of like knowing, being re realizing even on the best of days, like this is the track of treatment that I need to maintain myself in the community. Like they don't have that insight, just resistance sometimes to treatment. So even on the best of days, being kind of resistant to having spotty metal in your business. And I, that's understandable. And then again, the, just some of the resources that we have kind of limited and you know that they're trying to find stable housing. They still need to make a living or like have some way to provide for themselves, making sure they get to those services, transportation issues. And so all those, all those, you know, case by case, everybody's kind of in their own different situations. And just to add to that, it's a problem solving court. So at the end of the day, if you determine that a defendant should be in mental health court, then we want to solve a problem for them. But one of the measures that we use is recidivism and recidivism isn't necessarily something that correlates to improving somebody's life or somebody's circumstances or somebody's mental illness. It's a kind of a difficult situation to try to achieve both those things. So there are lots of challenges is what, <laughs> is, is what I, I hear you both saying, lots of challenges. What about misconceptions? Are there misconceptions around mental health in the criminal justice system? One I hear a lot of is the ease of having somebody hospitalized against their will. I have families who are, for some reason or another, they just feel like because I'm in front of, like, say, this general sessions judge, that they could wave a magic wand and get them into a hospital immediately. And that it's kind of a hard because, you know, we we only get involved in these kind of hearings in such a narrow way. Someone has to be called incompetent or insane. And at the same time, they have to meet the we have a pretty high barrier in Tennessee to get involuntarily committed to a hospital and they have to both meet that criteria. And if we're going to be the person to petition for that, they have to be in that line of legal standpoint. It's offered up to families through us, like the civil proceedings to families and, and other routes to get there. But I think some families get frustrated because I think that maybe they called the police because they were kind of at wit's end and they didn't know what to do next. And. They were hoping that they would get some sort of hospital stay or something out of the process. And, you know, it just doesn't always happen that way. 
And I think some more misconceptions are that services are readily available. We'll just find these people and then we'll plug them in A, B, C, D, E, and F. We don't even have A or B right now. So part of the, the misconception is, is that it's just a plug and play situation. The other part is that it takes expertise to give really effective treatment and setting up those kinds of services that are available for people that don't have insurance, that don't have good support systems, that, that have difficulty in getting from A to B, starting off their day and, and functioning appropriately. Um, that's a big challenge. Another misconception is, is that housing is readily available, that jobs are readily available. A lot of the situations that trigger these events are just life events that there's no easy cure to. One other thing too, I think that it's important to understand is mental illness isn't a crime. A lot of things that happen in the world of substance abuse are, are the fallout of somebody doing something voluntarily as far as taking a drug and, and maybe doing something. But mental illness is not that kind of situation. It's a, it's something that is a diagnosed mental circumstance. And for our court, you have to voluntarily want to participate. So to basically give up your control of your life to another court or a team of people, that difficult thing to do, I think, even for the person that we're offering this opportunity to. So I think it's mental health court is not a panacea. I think that's the biggest misconception. Very well stated. Very well stated. One thing that you guys are kind of touching on is really prosecutorial discretion. So let's talk about prosecutorial discretion. What does it mean and how does it play out in these cases, mental health cases? Well, I think prosecutorial discretion is it's your discretion as the district attorney general of the 6th Judicial District, which is Knox County, to take the law and apply it to the facts. And the law is very clear. The legislature gives us very clear guidance through the Tennessee Code annotated as to what the elements of a crime are. But applying the facts to that, that's where I think your discretion comes into play because it always is not a good fit. And in this case, like I said, a lot of times the behavior might line up perfectly, but the mens rea or the mental culpability doesn't. So I think that's where you can use discretion to determine whether or not the full outcome, whether it be the full weight of the law versus some type of problem-solving court is appropriate. I think it's also important to realize that when an officer is out on, on the street and he wants to take somebody into custody, probable cause is the standard. Prosecute a case here in court, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. So somewhere in between those two things, you have to use your discretion. On, all your ADAs have to use our discretion to determine whether or not that higher standard can be met and whether or not the resources of the court are necessary to give somebody a jury trial or not. The other parts of prosecutorial discretion I have are criminal history, recidivism, you know, the availability of private services. If, if somebody comes before the court and can access all these treatments that they may need through a private means without using taxpayer dollars, that's something that maybe you might want to consider and use your discretion on. With our recovery court, sometimes there is that robe effect of some individuals, they have access to the services, but they don't want to voluntarily do those or not, you know, they don't want to, they're a little bit treatment resistant. And sometimes when we have them voluntarily participate in our recovery courts, you know, we get kind of weekly FaceTime with the judge with our mental health cases. It's a little bit less so right now, but sometimes that's the motivator for some. They see sometimes they build a rapport with that judge they're not just here to incarcerate me if, you know, if it comes down to it. But sometimes that's kind of a missing piece for some of those individuals is just having the bench kind of on our side and kind of pushing for them to do well in our community. So I think that another thing that's worth mentioning as far as discretion goes is that we are also talking about individuals with mental health needs, but we're talking about individuals that are in the criminal justice system. And sometimes the level of the crime that these individuals have committed dictates where we go. Because our first and foremost charge is 
public safety and protecting the public and enforcing the law. And so we have to look at the level of crime. And sometimes the level of crime is so high that is where we stay in the criminal arena. And we do not take serious offenders and sometimes avail them uh, of the resources that we have for the lower level offenders. And, and that's part of our, I think, prosecutorial discretion as well as uh, victim impact. In these cases, I think we've touched on that victims have a say. And victims have a say in all of our cases. Clearly, as prosecutors, we have the final say, but we are always mindful of the victims, victims' needs, victims' wants. And so in these cases, victims really have a say in where we're headed, whether we let an individual kind of go down that mental health path or whether we keep them in the more punitive criminal justice system. So I think that's another area of our prosecutorial discretion. Okay, so we've been doing this for a few years now. So what have we learned? What uh, have we learned about the mental health crossover with the criminal justice system? It's never easy to predict. I think that's that's one thing. Every case is going to be slightly different. They could have same diagnoses. They can have similar structures of support or or whatever, where they're coming from. But um, it's hardly a week I go out that I'm not surprised by some aspect of it or something that's a head scratcher comes across of what to do next for some individuals. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that we've learned that that smart on prevention works, but it takes community partnership, takes really dedicated planning that that I think what we've learned is the different iterations of the programming that are going to hopefully culminate in this mental health board have been deliberate in that we've taken those past experiences and somehow made our process better. I think the one thing that stands out and what you've been doing is that there has to be resources. A court, especially a problem-solving court, can't be successful without resources. And we've also learned that they have to be sustainable. If you're going to make this kind of programming available to folks, it has to be something that that in the long term, like you said, as far as victims and community impact, community safety, it has to be something that, that will withstand the test of time, not a short-term fix. Yes, definitely lessons learned. Okay, let me get a little bit personal with you two now and ask you each just why did you get into this kind of work? Why did you choose this kind of work, this line of work? Why be prosecutors? I came to the the field of law from like working in special education, like degree in school psychology and worked a lot in special education and then trying to work on school wide practices, try to do best practices with teachers. And that's where I was stood before I started law school as kind of a later career change, which prepared me private practice before coming to work here. I represented youth in delinquent matters and really matters as a guardian at Lightham. I did a lot of that work and then coming here and naturally transitioned me into the youth prosecutor role for, for the six years. And, and like I said, that also kind of prepared me for this current role of just navigating in those spaces and doing a lot of problem solving around around these individuals. So first of all, to be the voice of a victim is is a great honor and a great opportunity to serve your community. To fight crime is also great. I enjoy it. I, I enjoy working with our law enforcement partners. I enjoy working with our local government. And I love being part of Team Justice. I think you've got a great team of folks here that that are all mission-driven. And just working for you and with you has, has been fun and exciting. And, you know, in opportunities like this, to be tough on crime, but to be smart on prevention. For the appropriate defendant to give them a chance to change their lives by giving them proper support, I think it's a good thing to do. And I think we might have talked about this in your bio, but Sam was an assistant DA for a while, and then he went out and practiced civil law for a while. And then when I took office, I begged him to come back. 
back into the DA's office, and I am thankful every single day that he said yes, because this office would not run without Sam Lee each and every day plugging away to make sure that this community is safe. So thank you both very much for all that you do for this office and for the citizens of Knox County. Thank you, General. Thank you. Well, after today's episode about mental health, I really want to say that I truly believe that a healthy community helps make our community a safer community. And prevention and early intervention play a very important part in our efforts to maintain public safety. One of the first steps in knowing what to do is learning how to recognize and intervene when you think someone is struggling with mental health. The Mental Health Association of East Tennessee provides education and access to resources like free mental health screenings and peer support services. The Mental Health Association of East Tennessee partnered with Knox County in 2022 to provide a state of mental health report. This report provides more context for our community's mental health resources and our current needs. To learn more, please visit Mental Health Association of East Tennessee's website and the show notes for links to resources. Up until now, Generally Speaking has taken a deep dive into each of our special prosecution units within the office. For our next episode, we'll be talking about sentencing. Sentencing does not get a pass from the complexities of the criminal justice system. The next episode will outline sentencing guidelines as defined by state law, as well as look at a real-world sentencing situation.